On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamprin today. We're talking about a new study that's being done about the LRT and the effect it may have on neighborhoods along the route. Should this have been done earlier, though? We'll we'll find out about that one. French's is coming up with a new popsicle. Yes, French's the ketchup manufacturer. We're going to talk to the person from the company that is making ketchup popsicles. Elvis. The movie opens. Do we still have a need and a desire for more Elvis? We'll we'll find out about that. The Governor General, more and more reports about big spending from this Governor General, and we know in the past from other ones. Why is this the case? We're going to talk about what is going on at Hamilton City Hall again. Pick your word. Is there a problem with council? We'll find out about that. And the Hamilton Bulldogs, Friday night. They must win, and they must win in regulation time. We're going to talk to the voice of the Bulldogs about their situation at the Memorial Cup. Stay with us. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We expect, based on everything we know about what's happening, that in the next little while, things will begin to ramp up with the LRT and with construction. I mean, anything is possible. There are people who say, you know, when they recost this thing down the road, it's going to come in way higher and governments are going to get cold feet. Well, who knows? But the plan is, the expectation is that the LRT is going to get built in Hamilton. And when it does, it's going to bring changes along that route. It is absolutely going to bring changes, not just the construction, which is going to affect some businesses and others for some period of time, but it's going to affect neighborhoods, people who live along there. It's already displaced some people with expropriations, but there's other people who live there now, and this is going to somehow change the dynamic of their neighborhood. Well, a new study is being done. It's called the Hamilton Neighborhood Change Research Project that is asking those people who live along there what they expect and how this is going to affect them and what they think it's going to do to their neighborhoods for better or for worse. It is, uh, it's an interesting idea. The, the person behind it is Brian Doucette, who's the Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion in the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo, who joins me now. Thanks for the time today. I really appreciate you jumping in. Not a problem. Good morning. Good morning. So, look, I, I, this, this makes a ton of sense, what you're doing, because anytime you're going to have a massive project like this, it's obviously going to impact people, for better or for worse. I got to say, though, Brian, as, as I heard this, my first thought was, this discussion about LRT, and this is not about you, this discussion about LRT has been going on for well over a decade now. Why are you having to jump in to do this now? Should this not have been done a long time ago? Well, that's a good question. And, you know, the the work that we're doing, we're not particularly interested in whether or not people think the LRT is good or bad. Like that discussion, as you say, has been going on for a long time. We're really interested in what is already happening on the ground, the impact of, at this point, just the decision to move forward with the LRT, what that is meaning for the kind of change that's taking place in in communities and the kind of experiences that people have within their neighborhood. And, you know, now is actually a really good time to be doing this because there is quite a lot of research that suggests that there's change that starts to happen, you know, when a project is announced. Um, it maybe becomes much more visible years down the line. But if we start to really understand the changes that are happening today before shovels have gone in the ground, it will help, hopefully, to develop strategies to mitigate some of the, you know, some of the, 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 the more negative aspects of development that invariably comes when you invest in higher order transit. 
when you say that you're a University of Waterloo professor, has the fact that did you see this happening? Because Waterloo just uh, what th- four years ago now, three, four, five years, three, less than five years ago, opened their their new LRT system. Did you see this happening there? Is that partially what informed this decision to get into a study like this? Yeah, I mean, this is part of a larger research project that I have on Hamilton. I've always found Hamilton a, an interesting city and a very important city if we think of the the, the, the greater Toronto area, the greater Golden Horseshoe. Um, and so it's part of this broader research project, understanding the kinds of change that's happening in Hamilton and, and the different roles that, that things like LRT or people moving from Toronto are playing in, in shaping neighborhood change. But yeah, we've seen in Waterloo, our LRT here opened in 2019, and we've seen uh, something to the tune of $4 billion worth of investment along the corridor. At the same time, we've seen the loss of a lot of housing that is affordable to people on low and very low incomes. And so this is not unique to Waterloo. There's studies in other cities in North America and beyond that have conducted, that, that have developed LRT systems that, you know, what you get is a wave of development, a wave of investment. And in many ways, there are a lot of benefits to that. What we want to investigate is, okay, what are some of the things that are happening to try and understand what kind of strategies need to be developed to make sure the develop, what kind of strategies need to be implemented to make sure that the development that does take place is inclusive involves a range of housing options and ensures that people who are living in these neighborhoods uh, where this new transit infrastructure is coming, where this, this new amenity is coming, that they have the right to remain and the ability to remain in their neighborhoods as they change. It is a tricky thing to juggle, is it not? Because, I mean, for as long as I can recall this discussion happening, one of the points that's been made here in the city is they've pointed to Waterloo and they've said, look at the billions of dollars in development. We can upscale and upgrade and offer all these new things and bring in all businesses and condos and everything else. It's a tough thing to look at that and say, we have the temptation to give it all to the developers to build these luxury units along the way, or we can do what you're talking about and make sure that this doesn't get away but that, I think the temptation for those who, who guide these things would be let's bring in as many tax dollars as we possibly can through this. Yeah. And, you know, it's not an either or kind of discussion, I think. Um, and if you think about it, Hamilton has become very proactive in shaping where growth is going to take place, right? Having the, the urban boundary yep. Uh, yep. expansion uh, limits and now having the LRT. So that will limit development and, and growth on the fringes and encourage more development to take place in the core. That's what Waterloo did uh, you know, a decade or so ago. It's what Hamilton's doing now. So the city's already embarking on a proactive strategy, strategy to shape where growth takes place. And what I'd like to see, and this is what I've also been talking about with folks here in Waterloo as well, is you also need an equally proactive strategy to shape what kind of growth takes place, what kind of development takes place. It doesn't mean you don't allow condos to be built and, you know, for-profit housing and so on, but it also means you have to think a little bit more proactively and creatively around some of the assets that you do have as a, as a municipality or as a public entity. Things like publicly owned land, right? There are different things you could do with that. You could sell it to a developer to build a big condo, or you could say, well, developer, you can buy land on the open market that someone wants to sell to you, and we're going to use that publicly owned land, that city-owned land, to build the kinds of housing that the market is unwilling or unable to build. 
And that requires a proactive strategy. But actually, if you have that vision, it's actually fairly fairly straightforward to do because the land is already in public ownership. You don't have to spend millions to buy land to build that kind of housing. It is uh, it, now. If someone's interested, we we got to run. But if someone lives along the route and is interested in participating, are you open to taking new people? Is there a way to reach out to you? They can go to our website that we have for this uh, study, which is uh, uwaterloo.ca slash Hamilton dash neighborhood dash change dash research. Uh, we're HNCR, and um, they can find more information about the study, and there is an option if they want to participate, and they can get in touch with us. We've had quite a lot of interest in this study, and so now we're just trying to work through all the people who, who have already uh, got in touch, but we certainly want to hear uh, as many different perspectives as we can. And again, not just about, do you think LRT is good or bad? But instead, we want to, we want to hear what's already happening. What kind of changes are you already noticing in your neighborhood? Um, because there's already things happening, and there will be more things happening in the years to he- years ahead. So the more we know about it now, I think the more information planners, policymakers have to build the kinds of strategies that are necessary to create that you know inclusive city along the LRT corridor. Brian Doucette from the University of Waterloo, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it today. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. When you talk to folks about these kind of things, when you talk about our our government and how it works and the monarchy and other things, many people, it's quite clear, don't really understand the purpose of the governor general within our government. And that's not what we're going to talk about today, about whether or not in our system that he or she is important. But when you have that lack of real understanding of their role, it becomes even more frustrating or annoying or something to a lot of people when you see bills coming in to the taxpayers from the governor general for extraordinary amounts of money. Earlier this month, we learned that the new governor general was on a trip to the Middle East with a flight with 45 other people on this plane. And Mary Simon and her crew racked up over $80,000 in catering fees. $80,000. It was, for a trip to the Middle East, it was $1,700 plus per person, not counting booze, just for food. I don't know what you do when you're on travel for work, but I'm guessing in the span of one trip, it doesn't come to $1,700. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation has shown that the swearing-in ceremony for her cost over $170,000, which was less than it was for Julie Payette, but on a per-person basis, it was more. This kind of stuff, I think, drives people nuts because why are the people who are in these positions spending our money in a way that doesn't seem like it reflects carefulness? I want to bring in Franco Terrazano, who is the Canadian Canadian Taxpayer Federation's Federal Director. Franco, thanks for doing this today. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on this morning. I think people would have been a little bit, um, their eyebrows would have gone up a little bit with these costs anyway, but when you have someone who to many people appears mostly to be a ceremonial position, even if it's not necessarily, I think people get even a little crankier about this. Yeah, no kidding. And then you add in the, uh, the elephant in the room, which is the context, which is the struggles that we're all going through. Four decades right. of high inflation. $1 trillion federal debt, 
people who have lost their job over the last two years, people who have taken pay cuts over the last two years, business owners who lost their business over the last two years. And then we find out these people in positions of power, it seems like they're essentially just throwing our money around without a care of the world. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that is the thing. I, I don't think that anybody, maybe some people, but I don't believe that people b- expect that our f- officials who are representing us are going to go and eat Big Macs everywhere they go and go yeah. with the absolute cheapest of cheapest of cheapest. But as I say, even people who are traveling for business regularly, I bet that if they went away for a couple of weeks, don't come home with a $1,700 food bill, not counting wine or drinks or anything else. That's a, yeah. I mean, that's a, you have to eat a lot to get to 1700 or eat very well. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, you know, when we first saw this $80,000 cab on in-flight catering, I mean, I was over here just scratching my head wondering, you know, how is it possible to rack up $80,000 on in-flight catering, not counting booze, on a one-week-long trip? So we crunched the numbers. You know what You know what they could buy with $80,000? 22 pounds of beluga caviar. Maybe that's <laughs> what they did buy. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, you know what? We're, we're laughing, but um, it kind of gets to the crux of the issue is that we have no idea what they spent the money on. Because the Governor General, uh, Rito Hall, isn't required to show us the receipts. And, you know, if they're spending $80,000 on in-flight catering, which us taxpayers, we're the ones who pay the bills, we should be able to see what they're spending the money on. But the real question is, okay, well, what are they spending when they're actually on the ground in Dubai for Expo 2020? You know, I, I, I haven't heard anyone say that Dubai is exactly a cheap place to go to. So if they're going to rack up $80,000 on airplane food, what are they spending on actual hotels and meals while they're on the ground? Yeah, I don't. Not too many targets in Dubai. I don't think that uh, that they're going to go shopping in. But you know, I don't know whether this is. So when I read this, I don't know whether this is a case of excess, as in we're just going crazy with you know everyone's eating lobster and caviar, or if it's you know in the old days of the Pentagon when you would buy a screw and it was four hundred dollars. Yeah. Like, is it the fact that because they're flying on on military aircraft, I believe. Um, it, it, if not a government aircraft, is it because the catering has to be done by a government organization and they're charging, you know, quote, quote, government rates that they can get away with anything? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things there. Number one, it's, how can we tell? We don't know what they actually spent the money on. We haven't actually seen the receipts. But I think to your point, I think there's a little bit of both. I think we have to point the finger at a few different parties here, right? Number one is, is it seems like there was a little bit of excess on these planes. Of course, we haven't seen the receipts, but I mean, how do you rack up $80,000 uh, with, with, with just pretzels and Diet Coke? I mean, that would be extremely hard. And I'm not saying that we should expect that's all they eat. That's, that's not reasonable. But come on, I mean, $80,000 over $1,700 per person, I think we can expect there to be a little bit ex- of excess there. And if there wasn't, then they should have no problem releasing the receipts. But then to your other point, uh, this probably also has to do with the fact that whenever you add government, it seems like the bill just continues to go up and up and up. And because this was a government aircraft, because this was government uh, uh, catering crew, I guess you can expect the cost to have gone up that way. Franco, there's one other element here that um, that you can't ignore, and that's the fact that, okay, so we're talking about Mary Simon now as Governor General with these big bills having to answer questions. We had the same questions with Julie Payette when she redid Rideau Hall, and it was huge expenses. We had the same thing with expenses when Mikhail Jean was in this position. We had the same questions about spending when Adrian Clarkson 
well, more after because she gets this extraordinary amount. They get this extraordinary amount of money every year afterwards. This position, fairly or not, has become a lightning rod for huge spending. Why? Well, I think it's uh, it's fairly become uh, a lightning rod uh, rod for scrutiny from the public because there doesn't seem to be any accountability at Rideau Hall. To your point, this in-flight catering huge tab is really only the tip of the iceberg. Um, and really, it, look, it wasn't Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that brought in some of these crazy expense problems, but I think we do have to point the finger at him and blame him because he knows about these problems. In 2018, he commissioned a review of the expense program that allow, allows former governor generals to bill taxpayers every single year for the rest of their lives and up to six months after their death for $200,000 every single year. So he ordered a review of this program, spent $20,000 on the review. The review was done in 2019, and he hasn't done anything about it since, right? That was like, what, three years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we, we do see these huge stories, the, the $200,000 uh, expensing for former governor general, the fact that you had Julie Payette, who only served for like three years, and she's still eligible to receive $4.8 million through her pension to the age of 90. The fact that the swearing-in ceremony for Ms. Sean was, uh, what, $1.3 million. We, we have heard on and on and on just these yeah, it's not exactly it's, it's It's not exactly uh, reassuring to people, as you said right off the top, who are struggling these days to hear this stuff. Uh, Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, thanks for doing this. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. City Council is back in the news, but not necessarily for the reasons City Council would want to be in the news, not for decisions being made about certain things to do with the city, rather about behavior and integrity reports and ethics probes and those kind of things. Let me bring in Councillor John Paul Dank, Ward 8 Councillor. Uh, Councillor, thanks for doing this this morning. Appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. So, you know, over the last number of years, and, you know, this is your first term of council, but I know that you've heard this over the last number of years. Uh, we have heard the term dysfunctional an awful lot from people in the public about council. Is your council dysfunctional? No, I don't think so at all. Uh, it, it, at times, I can see why it would uh, seem like that. But overall, I think our council is is, is very productive and we get, do the job that we were elected to do. We all don't live in Toronto, Ottawa, Kingston, Waterloo, wherever else, any other place that would have a council. So we don't see all the responses to what happens in those councils. But do you believe that the criticisms that Hamilton Council gets from members of the public would be similar if we were to closely follow all those other councils, that this is kind of a, a constant no matter where you go, or is it unusual here? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, as, as somebody that is interested in politics, you know, we often do look at some of those other councils that are in, in other areas. And it's really interesting that almost every municipal council has, uh, you know, some, we'll call them characters, uh, that at times, uh, you know, raise headlines because of their behavior, because of their antics. So I, I don't think that Hamilton is unique uh, in that respect. Um, I worked in heavy civil construction for 20 years before I was elected to council. So I was used to dealing with, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll say uh, men with big egos. And, uh, you know, so I, I was kind of expecting that uh, when I came onto council. But, you know, there there's times when 
I never ran into anything in the private sector working in construction uh, with some of the most uh, rough and, uh, you know, say aggressive guys that you could imagine. Um, coming to council was, uh, was next level at times. The, the, the story we're talking about right now and, and where this comes from, it's an ethics probe about uh, Terry Whitehead and it's... Uh, you know, uh, again, it's it's a it's a complicated thing, and when I say complicated, some people will say no, it's not complicated. The ethics probe says exactly what he did. That's not the complication part I'm talking about. People can go read the ethics probe if they want. It involves a lot of different things. The complicated part, counselor, is it's not like it's just a regular member of staff that if someone did something like this, you could take action against them. Because this person was not hired by you, this person was hired by the voters. It, it, it makes it a much more complicated situation, I would think, for how to deal with this. It's very much more complex. Um, Councillors are elected officials, so we were elected by, you know, through a democratic process by the residents that we represent. We have a democratic right to be able to participate and uh, represent those residents. And I, I think it's, it's really important that counselors in particular hold ourselves to a higher standard we have to be the the leadership the executive for the city of hamilton and i think more than anything the residents that i speak with anyway want to have confidence in their municipal council they want to know that their local counselor is effective in their role people pay in this city a lot of taxes and they want to know that we are effective that we are investing that money wisely that the city of Hamilton, as, as a, a $2 billion a year corporation, is effective and able to deliver the goods and the, the services that residents could rely on. And uh, people want to be able to know and have confidence that their, their specific local councillor is able to work for them. And that means they have to be able to work with their fellow councillors in you know, what you see as, in, in, as council but also behind the scenes with staff and, and with residents. And unfortunately, if, if you're not able to do that, and if, if one member of council is consistently, um, you know, their behavior is, is in the headlines and causing, um, you know, negative uh, perceptions of, of municipal government, it, it affects us all negatively. And it's, it's just bad for the city overall. Sure, but I mean, we had this with the school board earlier uh, in this term, and you know how things work at the school board well. The problem, I get back to this, the problem is you can't just fire someone like you would necessarily a staff person because I don't think that's built into our system. This is Ultimately, it has to come down to the, the voters. If they don't want that person, the voters will fire that person rather than you firing one of your colleagues or having even having the provincial government with the position to remove someone because you know, then all of a sudden you could end up with a very politicized situation where if there's a councillor or a school board trustee that the current government doesn't like for whatever reason, you know, it, it, as much as we don't want the stuff going on that's going on, the alternative almost seems like it has the potential to be worse. I, I think so. Uh, we live in Canada, so American politics is, is always seeps into you know, our Canadian political sphere. So in Canada, we don't have impeachment legislation. You cannot impeach a, a sitting government official, elected official, um, which means you can't remove them from office. The only way they can be removed is by voters on election day. And personally, I don't think impeachment is, is a good thing. I don't think it's a road that we should go down because, as you stated, it, it opens the door for all kinds of, of abuse from 
um, you know, people that are current government or anybody that has a grudge against, uh, you know, a specific elected official to have them removed. And, um, you know, we, we do have that mechanism and that's on elections on, on voting day. Yeah, and again, I know that it would be easy, and I, I mean, when the school board thing was going on, a lot of people said we need to have a way to remove them. We do, as you just said. It is called an election, and it may not be immediate because it may take time to roll around, but it works better than any of the alternatives possibly could. Uh, Councillor John Paul Danko, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for jumping in on this. No problem. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Tonight at 6 o'clock Hamilton time, you can tune on, turn on TSN and watch the Hamilton Bulldogs play against the Edmonton Oil Kings. It's a bit of an important game because if the Bulldogs do not win in regulation time, their season is over. All those wins, all those records, the Ontario Hockey League Championship, uh, this will be the last game. They're at the Memorial Cup and... I think, surprisingly to a lot of people, they are 0-2. They lost the opener to the St. John's Sea Dogs, and then last night played a vastly better game than that first one. The first one was not good. Played a vastly better game, but lost 3-2 to the Shawinigan Cataract, uh, mostly because they couldn't stop Shawinigan's power play. Three power play goals was the difference. Let me bring in Reed Duffy, who is the voice of the Hamilton Bulldogs out here in St. John. Uh, Reed, I think that if you had asked most people before this Memorial Cup started if one team was going to be 0-2, who would it be? Almost nobody, I think, would have said it would be the Hamilton Bulldogs. No, I, I think you're exactly right, Scott. And I think uh, the first night against St. John, St. John had more jump. Bulldogs coming off a seven-game series, a little bit tired in the legs. You could see it, and they needed to regroup. They did. And as you said, they played a vastly better game last night against Shawinigan. Probably deserved a better fate in that hockey game. But uh, Antoine Colomb in the net for Shawinigan and that power play with Borgo and Bork and Menard and so much talent for Shawinigan on that unit. They put up three goals on the man advantage and wound up being the difference. So now we're back into that game seven scenario against the Edmonton Oil Kings. Win and you're in, lose and you go home. Yeah, and and we were talking after the game. I was talking with a couple of people, and it's um, and I wrote this. Uh, people can read it at thespec.com right now. This could be we could face the most unusual and rarest situation in all of hockey, which is because the Bulldogs have to win, not just win, but they have to win in regulation time. We could see the Bulldogs pulling the goalie in a tie game. You almost never see that in hockey, but they might. No, you're exactly right. If it's coming down the stretch and it is a tie game, yeah, they're going to have to to try to get that goal. They need to win inside of 60 minutes. But if you're Edmonton on the other side, if the Bulldogs can get out to a lead on the Oil Kings, put some doubt in them, we'll have to see how Edmonton can press. They're only winning the tournament, comes in a three-on-three overtime, and that's not going to make any difference in tonight's game. I very much doubt that we're going to get to that point because simply as you said – uh, there, there will be goaltenders pulled if, if we're if we're anywhere close to that. So this is going to be a little bit of uncharted water for everybody coming down the stretch here tonight. Yeah, and I and I have to believe now. I, I didn't see Edmonton's first game, um, and I it, truthfully I haven't seen a whole. We you just don't in junior hockey see a whole lot of the other teams before they get here. So I can't speak a ton to how Edmonton plays, but for the Bulldogs, I would think it's going to be absolutely essential not to fall behind. 
because uh, knowing that the Bulldogs have to win in regulation time, if if Hamilton falls behind, I could easily see Edmonton just playing the dump it out and kill the clock game, and it becomes just a slog. The Hamilton's going to have to get a lead here. I would agree with you, Scott. I think the Bulldogs need to have a good start. They need to get out to a lead. They got to they got to stay out of the penalty box tonight. A couple of the calls in the third period, Jamie Key said it last night were, uh, let's say, interesting. Uh, <laughs> likely calls that we would not have seen during the OHL playoffs, but they'll they'll have to work around that tonight and make sure that they stay on the front foot. I think the other thing too, we've seen this with the Bulldogs, where even if they were to get down by, let's say, a goal, I don't think you, you can afford to get down by any more than that. But if Edmonton goes into that defensive shell, that has not worked well when teams have done that against the Bulldogs. We saw Windsor do it a couple of times. Bulldogs came roaring back. We saw North Bay do it briefly uh, in game three of that series, and the Bulldogs blew the doors off uh, when they attempted it. So the, a team can't go into a defensive shell against the Bulldogs with a one-goal lead, but I, I do think you nailed it uh, right off the bat. you got to come out to the front foot. I think a two-goal lead for the Bulldogs would be essential. This team has been real tough to beat when they've been up by two goals all season long. So if they could get to that point, I think there would be a bit of a better feeling, a bit more energy, and they might be able to squeeze their way on into the semis. Uh, last Wednesday at First Ontario Centre was the game of the season for then. Uh, tonight is now the game of the season. Every single thing rides on tonight. They either play on into the semis or the season is done. TSN, 6 o'clock tonight. Reed Duffy, thank you for this. Always a pleasure, Scott, and we'll actually see you down over at the rink pretty soon. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let me before we get into this, let me give a, uh, a slow golf clap and a little shout-out to Alicia back at the office who's playing the music and doing everything. We're talking about Elvis, and almost everybody else in a segment about Elvis would have started us with Jailhouse Rock or Heartbreak Hotel or Hound Dog. Alicia goes deeper into the Elvis canon to pull out something we haven't heard in a while. Way to go, Alicia. But yes, this is uh, there is a new movie about Elvis coming out. It's by Baz Luhrmann, who's the guy, if you saw Moulin Rouge, which makes you wonder, hey, what's this one going to be like? Because uh, Moulin Rouge was, um, was, well, it was something. But, but the question is, Elvis has now been dead, theoretically, unless he's living in Kalamazoo, Michigan, working at a Burger King, as the reports once said. Uh, Elvis has been dead for 45 years. And many people today weren't even alive when he was relevant, weren't old enough to remember him being relevant. So does he still resonate with people? Do we still want and need more bios and more stories about Elvis? Well, let me bring in, I know there are big Elvis fans in the city. I know there are collectors of Elvis memorabilia in the city, but of the people I know, this guy's the biggest Elvis fan around. His name is Mike Fortune. He's a host on Cable 14 and the owner of a spectacular Elvis-esque pompadour, the best in the city. Mike, how are you this morning? Hey, Scotty. I'm doing really well. Thank you very much for having me on this morning. Yeah, so so I know you will say, oh yeah, bring me all the Elvis that possibly you can produce, but do you think that the broader world, the broader audience says, I need more Elvis still? I think to this point, uh, things have started to dwindle a little bit. You know, the, the, the Collingwood Festival has been, uh, I think, set aside. Uh, it wasn't getting the numbers. Council didn't want to be funding those bills anymore. However, I do believe that this movie might bring back uh, 
and encourage more people to become an Elvis fan. You, you just never know. You know, he led such an extraordinary life, uh, short-lived, uh, be it all that, that this movie, and, you know, you, you have names like uh, Austin Butler and Olivia DeJong in there, it might bring some, some new Elvis fans out of the woodwork, if you will. Yeah, and Tom Hanks, too, which doesn't hurt. Yeah, um, Tom, yeah. Yeah, no, and, and you know, when, when you say that, I mean, immediately my brain went, I remember, I don't know how many years ago it was, that uh, when JFK, when the movie JFK came out, suddenly everybody was interested then in the JFK assassination and the theories there. So maybe you're right. Maybe this all of a sudden spurs a huge surge in Elvis. I mean, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, the, the Queen movie caused a surge in queen album sales so maybe elvis is back on top after this opens it's quite possible and you know they've been very aggressive over the last couple months with their their social media um presence uh, on twitter snapchat instagram you name it and and of course austin has been doing the the you know the full talk show circuit and i know tom hanks has been as well so they're really pushing this and it's it's you know they're they're showcasing it as the the movie of the summer and those can usually be pretty big. And and then when when you when you listen to, to Elvis, you know it, it's not a, a dry documentary or a docu series or a biop. However, they're trying to uh, position this. There's going to be music. There's going to be entertainment along with the story of Elvis. And and I think what people also have to remember, we all know him for his voice. That's what he was known for. But he was a very lonely individual. So the story that Baz is going to try to portray. I'm, I'm very interested. My wife and I, we have our tickets. We'll be there tonight, opening <laughs> night. <laughs> no surprise Shocker. There, Scotty. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we got our tickets about a month ago. So th- there's, there's a lot more to Elvis. Yes, I've read the books and the Elvis fans have, but I think being able to see Austin portray Elvis and all the hype that uh, the Presley family has given him and all the love and adoration as to how well he portrayed the king, um, you know, we'll, we'll get a better feel as to, you know, what was it like to be Elvis, possibly? See, you say that he's known for his voice. I think of him, uh, I think of a little peanut butter, fried peanut butter banana sandwiches there, baby. Um, <laughs> I know you always like to go down that route. I know it. I know, I know your Elvis <laughs> joke. But, but listen, yeah, I, when, you, when you think of the king of rock and roll, <laughs> when he first started, yes. he didn't have a roadmap. He, had, he was doing all of this on his own uh, in regards to... To, to the music, the movements, there was there wasn't the hype of rock and roll until Elvis came along. So you know he he's truly a pioneer when it comes to uh, you know starting a a huge huge following. Yeah, I won't use all my Elvis jokes, and some of them are visual. And uh, one of them almost got me beaten up when I was driving in on the little bus there to Graceland a few years ago. Uh, so you know something I was thinking, Mike, which you forget when I when we talk about relevance. I was watching a video I was flipping on YouTube the other day and came across this thing about about Live Aid, which was back in 1984, and everyone who's of a certain age remembers Live Aid, and it was all mm-hmm. the top acts of the 80s. And I was thinking, you know, Elvis only died seven years before Live Aid. Had he not, we may have actually seen Elvis performing in Live Aid because they had the Beach Boys and they had other ones who were there. We could, you know, Elvis, we've seen lots of other people who, whether actors or musicians or whatever, whose careers frittered out, frittered out or faded away and all of a sudden have a huge resurgence. Um, uh, you know, we may have, who knows what might have happened. We may have had a whole second act of the Elvis Presley story had he not died. 
Well, yeah, and, and you look at his career, you know, there's there's the young Elvis, there was the Army Elvis, and then there was the movie Elvis where he didn't perform for in front of any crowd, and then, of course, his big 68 comeback special, and that's what really relaunched his career the, into the Vegas years, so on and so forth. And, yeah, with, with the evolution of, of the 70s music, which he wasn't really part of, because then he gets into his gospel music and, and, and everything else, it's quite possible. And, yes, the reincarnation of, of Elvis during that live, thing you know can you just and who knows what his fashion would have been then because he he was known for his fashion and switching up i don't know if he would have still come out in the white jumpsuits or not or or maybe he would have done something a little bit more different but it would have been truly remarkable to have him to be there with queen and, and all the big names that were there for sure queen and elvis on the live age stage together doing we will rock you along with hound dog it would have been something uh mike fortune <laughs> Enjoy the movie tonight with your wife. I know. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. But uh, you wearing the jumpsuit to it? Actually, I got the black leather. I got the '68 comeback look tonight. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Appreciate it, Mike. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scotty. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Earlier in the week, we were chatting about the idea about uh, the idea about the reality that there is now a ketchup popsicle. Yes, if you're, it's very early, I understand. It's still 6.30. You may be still half asleep and lying in bed and hitting the snooze button. Wait, did he say ketchup popsicle? Yes, he said ketchup popsicle. There is now a ketchup popsicle. French is behind a new ketchup popsicle that is released today. I have seen video and photographic evidence of such a thing. I have seen people trying it. I have not tried it myself yet. I don't know if I'm that brave. But let me bring in Leila Kashavji. She is uh, the founder of Happy Pops, who is behind this. Okay, uh, Layla, thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott, for having me. Uh, tell me where the idea – did you call up French's and say, I've got a great idea. Let's put ketchup in a popsicle. Or did they call you and say, want to take a stab at this one? How did it come to be? They, call, they called us. They said, ketchup is a – summertime staple with barbecue season and we want to do something <laughs> fun for the summer to kick off the summer so can you make us a ketchup popsicle and you said of course i can i said i'll give it a shot and i didn't realize they meant i thought maybe an inclusion or like a ripple but i didn't realize they meant like hey we want this to taste like ketchup so we rose to the challenge <laughs> all right so how do you is you're the popsicle maker, and I've been on your website. We'll talk about it in a second because you have lots of unbelievable, amazing-sounding flavors on there. But is this simply just a case of taking a jar of, or a bottle of French's ketchup, squeezing it into the mold, and freezing it, and there you go, ketchup popsicle? No, no, no. This was carefully crafted with their team in Canada and the U.S. Uh, it's a tomato juice split, tomato juice base with some ketchup, some Frank's Red Hot. Uh, and then it's oh. finished with some rim salt. So it really has that Caesar or Bloody Mary taste. Okay, so that may change it a little bit for some people, but uh, yeah. for better or for worse. But nonetheless, like when they had originally said, we want you to do ketchup, did, did you have the same reaction that a lot of other people did before you made it? Like, are you serious? Because it sounds like a crazy idea. It's definitely wacky, and it definitely... It, it definitely, I was definitely not sure about this. And, but we wanted, we, we've always been committed to putting out something that tasted good. And their team, like the executive chefs, we worked, we worked really closely with them to put out something uh, 
that we thought was good and and showcase the ketchup but and we realize this is this is wacky i mean not everybody is this adventurous and but how many how many one. steps how many steps along the way were there how many failed versions are there were there before you got to the one that you said yeah we can probably we can produce that one i think it was probably like a third um the, the first it was after the first we tried a couple different routes to start and then it was more fine-tuning the balance of ketchup and hot sauce and everything and it was just tweaking that were, were so we some tried of those different early, bases start. Were some of those early ones when you tasted them? Was it very obvious that yeah, we can't sell this? <laughs> not oh yeah, in this original oh, form. Oh, yeah. I, I said, <laughs> yeah, I said I'm not even sending you this because I I don't think we can do this. <laughs> but I definitely had to consume a fair bit of ketchup for this task. <laughs> do you like ketchup? I do. do you I'm still like ketchup? I still like ketchup. I'm one of those people who likes my ketchup on mac and cheese and a few a few other things. So. What about the idea of hot sauce in a popsicle, though? I'm, I'm sure it's been done before. I'm not sure that I've ever thought about that. I'm not sure I've ever thought about having hot sauce popsicle. Yeah, it, it's weird. It almost feels like one of those cooking shows where it's like, here's ketchup and a hot sauce, and now make dessert. <laughs> but that's exactly what this experience was. But yeah, it's the, the, the hot sauce actually balances everything out because you get a lot of sweet and spices from the ketchup, but the hot sauce, I think, works really well in this. At some point along the way, I'm, I, I have to assume that the either now or in the past, someone's going to say, well, we made ketchup. That's the summertime staple, but we also have mustard in the summer on our hot dogs, and we also have relish. Are the relish and mustard hot do- uh, popsicles coming in the future? No, there's no plans for any of that. I think this is probably <laughs> um, the wackiest we've done, but I don't know. If anybody comes to us, maybe we'll be up for the challenge to, to do something else. I say I went onto your website, and um, some of these sound amazing. Raspberry, hibiscus, and uh, mango. That's never a bad thing with mango. Matcha, pineapple, coconut. Where was the one here? That coconut and dates, latte. I mean, yeah. lots of really, lots of really cool things here. But to get to those, you must have come up with a million different ideas of what we want to try. Had you ever thought of like going into the crazy stuff before this idea was proposed to you? Did you ever come up with one that you said, I don't even think that anyone would try this, but hey, let's just throw it out there and see if we can make something? Or was this the first? We briefly had tried a Caesar at one point, but we never really tested it out. But nothing really to showcase like a condiment or an ingredient like this. This is definitely, this is definitely something different. So here's here's something that always has fascinated me, and it's not with you guys necessarily, but I mean, it, people who make chips, companies that make chips, they come out with a million different flavors all the time, and we know what that flavor is. Like, let's say someone puts out a barbecued ribs flavor chips. You and I, we all know what barbecued ribs taste like. It's not like it's something that we've never experienced, and yet all of a sudden you put it in a chip, and we go, oh, "I got to try that." Why yeah. is that? Why why is it that? If you just put it in a different form, suddenly there's this huge appeal and huge curiosity. And I'm guessing the same thing with a ketchup popsicle. Yeah, I, I don't. I guess people want to try something, try something different. Like even I was at the pop up in Toronto yesterday, and people were intrigued. Some people were like, "Oh my gosh, no!" And then some people were like, "I need to try this." And people had actually come out to try this popsicle, and I was like, "Okay, this is interesting." And a lot of people actually finished it. 
What 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 was the range of reactions? I mean, I, I know that you would love to say that everybody thought it was fantastic because it's your product. Was that the consensus or was there a mix of some saying this is amazing and some saying, yeah, I'm not sure I would do this again? Oh, there's a mix. And I think a lot of people thought this was being sold and that's why this went viral all over the internet. But it was just a summer pop-up. And, and you know with something like this that not everybody's going to like it. But so it's a, not going on to the, the website full time. <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely there's definitely a lot of people. The the reactions were good. If you like tomato juice, if you like a Caesar, you like this popsicle. If you didn't if you didn't like tomato juice, this this isn't for you. All right, we got to go. But if for anyone who wants to try one, is there any way to get their hands on one, or was this just a one day or couple day opportunity, and that was the end of that? It's the pop-up is today. The last pop-up today is in Leamington, but the web the website has the recipe, so you can make it at home. Oh, excellent! Your your website or French's? No, the yeah the clubhouse website. Clubhouse the website. French's. All right, Leila Kashavji from Happy Pop. Really appreciate you doing this. Thanks very much for uh, for taking some time this morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.